Woi woi, woi woi, woi woi. Then it then go on the radio again. Yo, if you wanna smoke free weed, go board yourself. You need to go plant a seed. Go board yourself, make your knowledge increase. Go board yourself, go board yourself. All right, welcome to episode number 34 of Grow Bud Yourself, the Earl Campbell episode. We have a lot of great stuff for you guys today. Uh, we're going to talk about some news. We have as our guest, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, psychology professor, Dr. Mitch. And as always, a cultivation segment, great grow tips and Q&A, all brought to you by Excelsior Extracts, Sweet Leaf Nutrients, and Diamond Cut Co. So stick around for episode number 34 of Grow Bud Yourself. All right, so here we are, number 34. I called it the Earl Campbell episode. I grew up uh, sort of worshiping at the feet, at the chunky, thick legs of <laughs> Earl Campbell. tree trunk thighs of <laughs> Earl Campbell. Yeah, he's he's enjoying a bit of a of a resurgence in in the cannabis community, right? For his first name, Earl. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. right, right, Earl. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just a yeah. fan. I mean, he just ran over people. You know, he didn't try to mm-hmm. deke anybody. He just kind of like mushed them in the face and basically he ran. Didn't over need them. to be elusive. Yeah, Houston Oiler to the people who oh. don't know, Earler. Houston Earler, Earl Oiler. Campbell, number thirty four. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, quite a legend. We called him the Tyler Rose when I was in Houston, Texas, as a as a young uh, young man, young boy. Yeah, now I'm a I'm a good deal younger than you, so I have no idea what you're talking about. But anyway, uh. <laughs> most of our listeners probably don't. But go to YouTube and Earl Campbell, Houston Oilers, and uh, and just <laughs> just watch him run over people. <laughs> he was a beast. He is a beast. He's still alive. He's a uh, he's not a beast anymore. Like if he went out there now, well, he probably yeah no. He uses a walker. Well, he's like right. Yeah. So it was kind of cruel of me to say actually. Yeah. Yeah. But oh. God bless him. All right. Yeah. So welcome to uh, Grow Bud Yourself. He's Danny Danko. I am uh, Mike G, and uh, we appreciate you being here. Great show this week. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so we have uh, Dr. Mitch Earlywine as our special guest this week, so we're going to get to know a little bit more about Dr. Mitch and also get some answers to some uh, cannabis and uh, psychology questions. We also have a great uh, grow segment, right? It features uh, Danny's grow tip. Yes. A little listener Q&A. Indeed. Okay. Well, um, we have we have a jam-packed show so we don't have a ton of time in the intro but there were two news stories that i thought that uh, we really should touch on here right at the start so the first one of course being that in new jersey the uh, legislature has finally passed uh the the bill and set up the uh, framework for their tax and regulate plan there so that's great news absolutely and uh i think they also agreed not to arrest anybody anymore for cannabis in between now and the implementation of those laws Yes, they passed a second bill that's a decriminalization bill that is exactly that. It will um, it will stop arrests for uh, for people between now and when cannabis is actually legalized in January. That is the bill that we were discussing a few weeks ago that was held up because uh, the Senate wanted to include, the House of the Senate wanted to include uh, decriminalization of shrooms, remember? Yeah, yeah, that 
That's crazy. And also, you know, we have a, a friend of the show, uh, Mario Ramos, who is right now in jail in New Jersey uh, under like a ridiculous cultivation thing. So uh, Mario from I Bud You, uh, free Mario. You know, it's crazy that uh, that he's in jail right now in a place that just legalized to, you know, voted to legalize and agreed not to arrest people. So, um, you know, definitely shout out to him and hopefully he'll be out soon. Yeah, absolutely. But the, uh, the decrim bill went through with the, uh, the magic mushrooms provision. So, um, Interesting. so people, yeah, people in New Jersey can possess, uh, up to six ounces of cannabis and, uh, and even up to an ounce of shrooms if they'd like. So that's, that's big news. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah, the uh, other little bit of news that I thought that we should bring up for our listeners is <laughs> Congress all of a sudden seems to be all about cannabis um, because both the House and the Senate have passed these um, cannabis research bills. So they haven't passed the same one. There's two different ones. But they both have passed uh, bills that will call for more research into cannabis and also will require that the uh, the Department of Health and Human Services looks into the benefits of cannabis for health and also uh, looks into how research into cannabis can become smoother. And the reason this is interesting, there's a few reasons. Right now, the federal government considers cannabis a Schedule One narcotic with uh, no accepted medical use, right? Mm -hmm. But secondly, and this is going to come up a little later in our interview with Dr. Mitch, one of the bills would make it so that research into cannabis could be done through cannabis that's obtained from state legal dispensaries, as opposed to only being able to get the, the cannabis used for research from the University of Mississippi. And as we all know, uh, the studies have shown that the pot from the University of Mississippi is actually closer to hemp <laughs> than it is cannabis. So they're not getting legitimate research out of that cannabis, right? Correct. I mean, it's schwag. Not even mids. I mean... And, you know, they also use uh, seizures, you know, uh, cannabis that's been seized by the DEA on a federal level and things like that. But that doesn't have, you know, that doesn't have any provenance. I mean, that could be from anywhere, grown in any way, and right. not lab tested, not, you know, created in the way that the dispensaries are with a vertical integration and all that. Absolutely. So um, obviously we hope that the House measure passes because that's the one that would allow uh, pot from dispensaries to be used for research. And if you're interested at all in that uh, University of Mississippi um, garden there, we're going to talk about it a little bit more in the interview. Indeed. Yeah. So that's a little bit uh, of what's going on in the world of cannabis. We have a great show. Um, you know, we got a we got our old friend Dr. Mitch coming up, right? Yes, indeed. And uh, he's a uh, psychologist. And I think, you know, it's interesting, the study of individuals. Uh, I, must, I studied sociology in college, uh, the study of groups, but very closely related, just how people, you know, behave amongst themselves or how people behave amongst others or how groups interact with each other or, or, or replace other groups in people's lives. And so, yeah, very interesting to talk to someone in academia about cannabis who's not, you know, lying. <laughs> it's hard to find them these days. Yeah. And, you know, in medicine as well, which is crazy. Mm. You know, these are the people we should be trusting. Well, 
Fortunately, we can trust Dr. Mitch, so, um, I don't know, what do you say? Should we just get right into the interview? Yeah, let's do it. We'll be back after these messages with Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Hey, you guys, this episode is brought to you by Excelsior Extracts and their incredible THC-infused relief rub. Uh, And now this stuff really works. And uh, I know it works because it's made by our friend Outcast, and she needs very, very strong topicals. Uh, So the relief rub is the strongest topical I've ever tried. Check them out on Instagram at Excelsior Extracts, all one word. Uh, DM them for info on the relief rub if you're interested and uh, give them a follow. Uh, They're great people and they grow great cannabis and make great products. So thank you to Excelsior Extracts. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to Grow Bud Yourself. And uh, we're really excited to have uh, this guest this week. Now, he, he has been on the show a number of times and we've worked with him for many years, but we realized that we haven't actually done a, a proper interview. So uh, please welcome our guest for episode 34, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, professor of psychology at SUNY Albany and author of The Parent's Guide to Marijuana. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mitch. Pleasure to be on, you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And now you you uh, have been coming on the show every so often to help us out with the, some questions that we have that relate sort of to the um, the psychological side of cannabis and uh, just you know drug use in general. But um, but how did you first get involved with cannabis as an aspect of psychology? It's a strange tale. I uh, was an alcohol researcher at University of Southern California. I'd started there in '91, and pre-tenure pretty much went down that path. After it looked like I was probably going to get tenure, I started teaching this class called Drugs and Human Behavior and uh, thought, oh, I'll tell everybody all about alcohol and they'll really appreciate it. And they said, ah, we're we're not into that anymore. Now we want to know about marijuana. And then as I got into that literature, I realized really the, the magnitude of the lies I'd been taught and heard over the years and put the book proposal together for understanding marijuana Finally got that out, went to the class and said, you guys, here it is, just what you wanted. And they said, oh, we're not into that anymore. Now we're into ecstasy. So <laughs> it was it was strange to become, you know, this this cannabis expert, uh, I thought rather innocently and just give an even handed uh, summary of that research literature. And then basically the Office of National Drug Control Policy started bad mouthing me right away. And Normal reached out and asked me to be on their board. So it kind of tells you sort of where the world was at the time. Wait, wait, the drug czar attacked you? Oh, it was, it was strange, too, because, I mean, here, Oxford University Press, like, here's a really prestigious academic press. And I certainly, you know, didn't get the chance to pull the wool over anybody's eyes or, or tell any lies in there. Um, and they they were seemed to be uh, pretty furious about it. And in contrast to basically everybody else was... Uh, 98, 99 there. So it didn't come out until 2002, but the medical cannabis laws had just passed in California too. So I think they could see that everything was going to, going to tumble relatively soon. You know? Yeah. Well, they, they're in a bit of denial over there. You also wrote a, a book called the parent's guide to marijuana. It was a real fun project. Um, 
Michael was still alive and the high times folks just asked me to come down and, and have lunch. And I, you know, who wouldn't want to go have lunch at the, at the high times office. Um, and by the end of it, they basically said, look, we really do need some kind of credible guide for parents. And at the time, I mean, everything out was just really alarmist finger wagging nonsense. And I said, you guys, I'm not going to, say cannabis is harmless. I really want to help people build relationships with their kids so they can talk about anything. And they said, oh no, we're, we're totally with you. And as I started writing it, I realized I need to kind of tell the story of, you know, how do you really open up the idea of talking about anything uh, with your offspring, including cannabis. And it just kind of spun from there. I'm uh, I'm sorry the the book isn't you know everybody's favorite and sometimes it's hard to find copies but I, I'm definitely proud of the chance to just talk about that topic and as my kids grow up I'm I'm you know always in awe of anybody who can parent anyone but particularly eager to emphasize that you know the truth is on our side it's fair to say it's better to wait uh, if you're going to use cannabis but but all in all this is not the biggest concern. Uh, parents need to have as far as problem behaviors for our, our, our children. Yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult topic to, uh, to take on and you do it very well, very eloquently. So, um, you, you were referring to, uh, Michael Kennedy there, the, um, the former owner of High Times Magazine. And of course, you, you became involved, um, as a longtime contributor to High Times. I know, uh, when Dan and I were there, you were contributing, uh, the Ask Dr. Mitch column. Uh, at what point did that start? I, I think that pretty much happened uh, right afterwards. So it would have been around 2006 or seven, I'm guessing. And, uh, you know, I really welcomed the opportunity. I realized that it's a different set of skills to, to write a column like that. You only have so much space and uh, need to kind of cut to the answer as quickly as possible. Make sure you're doing enough uh, questions and some interesting ones in a way that'll uh, draw in a, a lot of different readers, but then, you know, don't oversimplify or lose any of the nuance. So it it was definitely a, a steep learning curve, but uh, one I appreciate and I'm glad I can I can do that kind of thing now. Well, I'll tell you, I appreciated that because I was your editor for a while there and, and you required very little editing at all. So thank you for that. <laughs> That's Dan uh, did a great job on on the parents' guide for that matter. He was he was superb with his feedback. So. Um, now you mentioned that you know uh, you made that switch from alcohol research to cannabis research, basically kind of after receiving uh, tenure. And you know our uh, deceased friend uh, Dr. Lester Grinspoon suffered some setbacks in his career. Uh, due to his, you know, cannabis, you know, being pro-cannabis in his research and writings. Um, did have, have you felt any any of that stigma at, at in your situation? It's hard because it, it, it makes you look paranoid. So, I mean, Lester did stuff in the 70s when I was literally, you know, still in grade school. And I really have to uh, tip my hat. That was super admirable at the time. And then to basically get stuck at associate professor level in the med school there for him, I'm afraid, you know, they really were kind of kind of harsh. I know folks who were at med school 
with him as an instructor back in those days too, including Andrew Weil, right? So he had he had a really wonderful impact on a lot of people. And it's strange because when you look at the things he's published, maybe there was some alternative explanation for why he never became a full professor. He wasn't going to play the same grant getting game and only, you know, uh, write grants about how terrible things are when he really wanted to focus on the fact that maybe we needed to change policy instead of focus on pathology and humans. But the bottom line was, I feel like he certainly did deserve that kind of promotion. And the fact that he never got it always kind of hurt me. I was delighted when uh, USC was willing to uh, at least give me tenure, you know, before that stuff. And then there were occasions where I'd be up for certain awards and hear later down the line that somebody in the president's office had said my work was controversial and that maybe I, I wasn't the year for me or things like that. And when my book came out, uh, I mean, it's a good book and I really wanted it to do well. Um, and I couldn't seem to get any real acknowledgement. Uh, on campus about it. And then somebody got an award for a, a book written that year that was much more technical. Uh, another guy who I'm delighted, like he wrote a thing about uh, basically uh, gay art in ancient Greece and stuff like that. And I was like, no, that, you know, that's open-minded of them. That's, that's really cool. But I never seemed to quite uh, get the benefit of the doubt, shall we say, after that on uh, university-wide teaching awards or research awards and yeah, maybe I was being paranoid, maybe not. It's interesting because now that I'm at SUNY, it's always been a two-edged sword as as well. And so I I uh, I don't do you know what they thought I was going to do, which is go into the fraternities and tell everybody to never smoke cannabis or or you know write a grant to keep everybody from binge drinking. It it's just not you know calling to me in the same way. And I think right now, at least the way the federal funding is going. The, the department's probably, you know, a little disappointed or the deans are, you know, scratching their heads going, why isn't he, why isn't he bringing in the cash when, you know, I'm just much more interested in uh, things that may not be literally what National Institute on Drug Abuse is, is willing to fund. Well, I got to say, um, I've mentioned this on the show before, but literally every time I email you, I get an auto reply saying, sorry, the class is full. Uh, maybe I'll get you in next uh, semester, possibly, but probably not. So you're a very popular guy up there. Um, and I'm glad that there is so much interest. And there was a time when when there might not have been. Um, but also, man, uh, undergrads can be a little pushy when they want to get in the class, too. So I, I do get that email uh, auto reply up uh, more out of self-preservation than anything else. So also looking at your CV, I noticed that you spent a year uh, in 1990 to 91 at the University of Mississippi. And I'm wondering if you ever caught a glimpse of the cannabis growing laboratory. That's where the government actually has their facility. It's an intriguing question. No, so that's up in Oxford and I was down in Jackson and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I, I had at least one publication loosely related to cannabis by then. And I thought, oh, I'll just call this guy and see if I can come by and say hello. With it. Oh, my. No, that is not how it works at all. And El Soli's been doing that for, you know, literally decades. And they uh, take all the, you know, cannabis that's been confiscated and measure the THC and, and you know, have created all those weird quandaries about how uh, pot is so much stronger now than it used to be. 
but also it, it's just not the kind of thing where you just drop by the lab. Like they really have uh, some pretty strict, as you might imagine, uh, arrangements and they do grow pot there. And it's funny because their, their high THC strain was 8%, which I mean, I think right now that wouldn't even, uh, you know, make it into a dispensary. So you can imagine the, the early nineties. What did we know? Yeah. I mean, from this pictures that I've seen, you know, they could definitely use some help when it comes to, uh, techniques and, uh, and genetics. Nonetheless, though, get just getting a glimpse of the fabled University of Mississippi grow would be pretty amazing, I think. Uh, you know, 60 Minutes or somebody, you know, somebody who's big in the media gets gets to break in, but it, it's it's not easy to do. <laughs> I also heard uh, that you've done some stand-up comedy, and I'm wondering if that, you know, plays into any of, uh, you know, your lectures when you're doing, you know, classes. So right after I got tenure, I happened to be in group therapy at the time, and everybody was pointing out that I had no like skill-based leisure at all. Like everything I did was kind of workaholic stuff. And then I saw an ad for Greg Dean's stand-up comedy, and it happened to be maybe three miles down from my house back in Los Angeles. And I was like, I should I should check this out. And it was a six-week thing, and and then there was an advanced one, and then you got to like do a show and invite your friends and things like that. And I mean, it was obvious I was, uh, you know, never going to have a sitcom of my own or anything like that. But I just really got a kick out of it. And if anything, I learned about joke structure and became much more relaxed in class. And although I had had some teaching awards before then, I literally got every year until the psych department basically just stopped giving the award. And then I came to SUNY and got 10 in 10 years. And again, they stopped doing it. So I don't, I don't get to get it anymore. And no one else does either. So it's a bit of, it's a, bit of a shame. Wow, interesting. What's the deal with cannabis? Um, well, so that was really an interesting little background. But um, what you've been doing so um, impressively for our show since we, we launched back in April is kind of coming on and addressing some of the topical things that are going on in your field as relates to cannabis. And one of the things um, that we were talking a little bit about was this concept of ketamine-assisted treatment for cannabis use disorder. Now, that sounds odd to me, uh, but could you give us a little uh, insight into that? Well, I've always been delighted that folks are willing to experiment with uh, psychoactive treatments for any kind of human suffering. And there are compelling data to suggest that uh, ketamine can really improve depression and at least some uh, aspects of PTSD and maybe even some substance abuse problems. But now there's a pilot study out saying, okay, come in and, and we're going to do ketamine-assisted therapy for cannabis use disorder. And I just find the whole thing a little odd because how serious is cannabis use disorder is you know a question worth having and I don't mean to minimize anybody who struggled with it and I, I certainly have uh, friends and colleagues who have decided hey the plant's not for me anymore it just got too obsessive it just got too problematic for me and I really you know admire those guys and many of them are still willing to you know support legalization and and work hard for uh, the movement which I'm really grateful for but all in all cannabis use disorder is not the kind of thing that you would think hey you need a ketamine assisted therapy for this if it works 
great. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to see anybody benefit as, as they can. But right now there are just so many other really serious pressing problems. I was, I was disheartened to see that this was the focus when uh, odds are high, there, there are more serious problems that uh, might be more appropriate. Um, and the format is delightful when it's done right. It's not just how go, you know, go have a ketamine trip and things are going to get better. You really have these nice preparatory session or two talking about setting an intention like you would with any good psychedelic experience. Go in. They uh, often have IV, but there's also some uh, other ways of administering. There's a new intranasal one and things like that. Folks who are willing to like focus on their inner experience seem to go better if you kind of cultivate the mystical connectedness associated with it, it seems to go better than if you just kind of get disembodied and don't pay attention and then have another session afterwards that really focuses on what insights did you have and how do you want to change your behaviors down the line? I've seen places where you go in and people are playing on their phone during the administration and it's often run by folks who are uh, more, you know, the anesthesiologist and MD model where they think, oh, we just got to get you up to a therapeutic dose and it's all going to happen. And I honestly don't think that's the most efficient approach and may actually not even work. So we'll see. It tends to support this idea that the more mystical the experience, <clears throat> the better you get. And the psilocybin trials for depression are also supporting that. So I do feel like we're onto something if people are willing to make that a priority. What do you think there, Dan? Would you sign up for the ketamine? Sure. <laughs> I would. I mean, I think all of us could use a little uh, introspective, you know, time and, and things, you know, any substance that can help, I think, is a very uh, well, well worthy of research. <laughs> and I'm happy to I'm happy to be the guinea pig. <laughs> well, it's got to be, I guess, a little bit controversial. But um, the other uh, thing that you wanted to discuss is a, is a very controversial subject, which is a cannabis use during pregnancy. But there's a new study on that, right? So it's intriguing because it's such a, a tough topic. Um, obviously, I can't get pregnant and maybe my opinion shouldn't even matter. But uh, the latest data set really um, focused on pretty heavy cannabis use during pregnancy and some pretty sad uh, outcomes, including autism. And I realize I don't want to pathologize autism. There are communities of autistic folks who emphasize that, you know, they're just relating to the planet in a different way. And we shouldn't even call it a disorder. And I'm completely open to that. I do know it creates a lot of struggle for parents when a, a child does have that. And the media often gets a hold of this and makes a big deal out of it. So it turned out that, uh, you know, the risk didn't double in the heavy cannabis users, but almost did. And under those circumstances, it just seemed like, uh, you know, going from two in a thousand to four in a thousand, like I do know women who, because of nausea and stuff have used cannabis during pregnancy and their kids are fine but it's only going to show up in these really large samples. I don't really even know what to say. It sounds so male and butch and paternal to say, oh, never use cannabis during uh, pregnancy. And yet it is a, it is a formative time and it, and it just might have these negative consequences. And then that same data set showed some hard 
uh, learning disabilities outcome data and and uh, maybe some trouble in reading and things like that, but they're never randomly assigned, right? You don't randomly assign some woman to smoke cannabis during pregnancy. So we don't seem to have good measures of if the parents had these disorders at the first place and that maybe that's really all that's going on here. And so we're pathologizing cannabis in a way that just seems so unfair and compared to say binge drinking during pregnancy, which we know is, you know, drastically awful. It, it seems, it seems rough to be pointing a finger at this under the circumstances. Another subject uh, that uh, none of us really know that much about on a personal level is premenstrual sh- syndrome and cannabis. And you were involved in a study of, of that as well, right? And my lab for a while, it was really sweet. We were sort of the cannabis and women's health lab. And so uh, we s- had some intriguing data on uh, PMS, on what they call PMDD, premenstrual dysphoria disorder, which is just kind of PMS on steroids, if you will, and some of the symptoms of menopause. And as you'd guess, you know, cannabis does help with irritability and uh, discomfort, joint pain, things along those lines. And then there's some things it's just never going to do. So they, uh, there's a, an often a vaginal dryness type question on, on those kinds of surveys. And, you know, come on, cannabis makes your mouth dry. What do you expect? You know, so I, I feel like our expectations on some of those things can be a little, little awry. I've just seen a whole lot of really effusive case studies on cacao, on, on uh, ceremonial chocolate use and, and PMS. And I'm actually going to try to follow some of those data up because I just feel like, you know, nobody should have to suffer if they don't, if they don't want to. And we're talking about uh, inexpensive interventions that could be enjoyable that ought to let folks, you know, make the most of their lives throughout the month. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, over the years, we've heard a lot of uh, of new information when it comes to things like uh, consuming during pregnancy or what uh, cannabis uh, can alleviate symptoms for and things like that. It's it's a, a subject that's constantly evolving. So what uh, what's on your radar uh, as far as new literature that's out there? So, I mean, for 2020, we're, we're getting a bigger look at the impact of legalization in different areas and some of the negative consequences that we always hear about and trying to estimate their magnitude. So Wayne Hall, who's down in Australia, who's been on top of this kind of work for for literally decades, uh, just put out a review talking about potential negative consequences, including some problems with uh, emergency room visits. And we've always got to in a sense, uh, address these notions that uh, driving could be impaired after use. He's been as even-handed as as anyone, I think, but it's not always consistently good news. So we often see right after legalization in an area, some increases in uh, reported emergency room visits that are cannabis involved. I feel like a lot of times it's just that as the stigma drops, you'll hear people be more willing to say, Actually, you know, I did get high and, and ended up cutting my thumb when I was making, you know, my my munchy soup or something like that. Whereas I think in the past, folks were just less willing to fess up. And so I, I never want to, you know, make too much of those data either. 
And then the driving literature goes back, you know, all the way to the 90s. We do see it's really hard for people who are high to stay right down the middle of the lane. But otherwise, they seem to do very well, even in intoxicated driving situations where they're, you know, on this enclosed track and they've got a a driving instructor sitting right there next to them, you know, rating everything they do. The delightful thing seems to be that people are willing to compensate. So you'll notice that uh, folks who use cannabis increase the distance between their car and the car in front of them. They seem to increase their stopping distance. They definitely watch their speed well. They don't try to pass other cars. It seems like basically what has guided me is I'll say, hey, don't drive high, but drive as if you were, right? Take your time. Be a good uh, sharer of the road, shall we say. Make sure you give yourself plenty of time to stop. Give yourself plenty of room between your car and the car in front of you. We should all drive that way all the time, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's like that uh, that uh, anti-cannabis commercial we were talking about a few episodes back that equated driving stoned with um, with going toe-to-toe with an axe-wielding murderer. So a little bit... Uh... Over the top there. Well, and I'm proud that as people are trying to put together public service announcements, their perception of our audiences seems so awry. Who would possibly buy that kind of thing? I know we've, you know, we've joked about the one where the dog is talking to the woman and saying, you know, you're you're not my friend anymore or something like that. And I understand anybody, you know, wanting to reconnect to somebody if they're stoned all the time. I'm sure, you know, my wife would grouse if uh, I was never feeling uh, connected to her or the family or anything like that. But it seems, again, like we're really pathologizing really minor things compared to the magnitude of some of the problems we have right now, it, it's, it's a little disheartening. Absolutely. And yeah, that dog is a jerk. <laughs> um, um, we're, we're running a little long here, but uh, we wanted to say thank you so much for, for joining us on the show, Dr. Mitch. We really appreciate it. It's great after all of these years to actually have a proper interview with you. Uh, but before we go, um, why don't you let our listeners know where they can connect with you online, uh, maybe, you know, check out, what you're doing on YouTube, that kind of thing. So I did post my uh, lectures on YouTube and it's just under, under Mitch early wine there. And I leave the cannabis lectures up all the time. I often pull the other ones down just to keep the semester uh, reasonable for my, for my undergraduate students. And I'm always happy to answer emails. So at 420 research at gmail.com, that's literally the numbers 420 research at gmail.com. And, you know, often it uh, gives me something to discuss in the high times column or just help me know sort of what's on everybody's mind so I can decide, you know, what's a good use of my time. Thanks so much for uh, doing this. And again, I just wanted to tell you guys, I really love the new, the new magazine. The new show is, is always delightful. And thanks so much for putting in the effort. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. We appreciate it. Um, And stick around. We'll be back with more Grow Bud Yourself after these messages. We want to thank you guys for listening. This episode of Grow Bud Yourself is sponsored by Sweet Leaf Plant Nutrients. That's S-U-I-T-E-L-E-A-F Plant Nutrients. 
the folks at Sweetleaf have just released a new organic fertilizer line called Sweetleaf Organic, complete with six bottles of liquid plant amendments and two bottles of dry crumble and powdered fertilizer. So please go check out Sweetleaf. That's S-Q-I-T-E-L-E-A-F plant nutrients at www.sweetleaf.com and use code DANKO15 for 15% off your entire order. Thank you, Sweetleaf. Uh, We're so happy to have you as a sponsor again, and the new product line is amazing. Don't forget to check them out. Sweetleaf.com, DANKO15 for 15% off. All right, welcome back. And we have entered... The cultivation zone, I believe. We have indeed, and our cultivation segment is sponsored by Diamond Cut. That's right. Diamond Cut Co. Uh, incredible trimming scissors made for growers uh, with conscious ergonomic designs. Uh, an incredible company with really great customer service. And again, the scissors are the best on the marketplace. Uh, easy to clean, easy to use, easy on the hands. And uh, they also provide free shipping and some amazing deals as well. Like, uh, you know, you can bundle their products. They have the All Pack, which is all five of their scissors, including the Classic, the Pro, uh, the Harvester, the Artisan, and the 6.5. Plant label markers, too. Free F-type plant label markers. And normally this costs $99. They've got it discounted to $89 on Diamond Cut Co. And if you use the promo code DANKO20, you get another 20% off of that. So you're saving another almost $20. It's a great company with an amazing product. So check them out, Diamond Cut Co. Use that code DENKO20 for 20% off everything they've got on the site. Check them out at diamondcutco.com. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So on to the cultivation section here. And um, it is an off fortnight. So we don't have a strain this uh, week, but... As always, we have a grow tip. So each week, uh, Dan likes to take on a topic that will help you become a better grower. So what would you like to talk about this week? Yes. So this week, we are talking about the kind of typical CalMag uh, situation. People talk about a CalMag deficiency. It's actually not really quite true. You know, typically, it's going to be a magnesium deficiency more so than calcium in a lot of cases. And what that looks like uh, is kind of different depending on you know the strain and things like that the first thing you need to do uh, when you think you have some type of a deficiency is make sure it's not a ph issue a fluctuation in your ph because that can make you think you have a deficiency when you actually don't and what it's happening is the plant's just not able to take in that magnesium through its roots because the ph is off so first you know typically you know, low pH levels will cause the plant to become unable to take in magnesium. Um, And, you know, this is also how when you see leaves that look like a taco shell, you know, where they're sort of curling upwards from the middle and they look like, you know, a a crunchy kind of taco shell, the stalks start turning dark purple, Um, the leaves get kind of crinkly, Uh, the edges get a little rounder, the stems get streaked. There's lots of different things that can signify a, a deficiency in magnesium. And again, there's really no such thing as a CalMag deficiency. So the cliche, of course, for most growers is, oh, you need to, you need some CalMag. But really what you need is magnesium for the most part. Uh, that's the deficiency that's most likely the problem. 
and they're different deficiencies. So, um, you know, calcium is immobile, uh, meaning it can't be moved through plant tissues, whereas uh, magnesium is highly mobile within plant tissues. So knowing that really gets helps you make a proper diagnosis. Um, and because calcium is immobile, if you have a calcium deficiency, it's going to occur only on upper or newer growth because it's immobile. But because magnesium is mobile, um, the deficiency occurs on older and lower growth. So what uh, we talked about what that looks like, it really kind of degrades chlorophyll. So the old leaves will have uh, intervenal chlorosis, uh, yellowing basically between the leaf veins, uh, which tend to stay green, giving your leaves a marbled appearance. And it's a pretty frequent deficiency. Aside from, you know, the three big ones, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, magnesium is really the next big one. So if you see that yellowing between the veins and the veins still looking green, that's a pretty sure sign of magnesium deficiency as long as your pH is balanced. You know, let's say 6.2 or 6.5 or even 6.0. Uh, so be and because magne magnesium is mobile, uh, it can move from old leaves to new leaves. Uh, so you need to react promptly to the deficiency and add some mag. Uh, of course, uh, we have a sponsor, Sweet Leaf Nutrients, where you can get their Ultra Mag, which is a great way to solve this problem. Uh, but, you know, lots of companies have the, these products. And uh, the important thing is diagnosing this deficiency properly, making sure that the crispiness around the edges is, isn't nutrient burn, which could mean that you're adding too much. Um, but red stems, purple stems in plants that don't necessarily grow like that normally, that's a sign. And the biggest one is that yellowing between the leaf veins. The solution really, again, is just to give the plant magnesium. So once you've added magnesium and the deficiency is cleared up, the problem will stop spreading to your older leaves, uh, usually within a few days. And the leaves that were damaged previously will probably not recover. So you want to pay attention to new growth for signs of recovery. And you'll be able to see them bouncing back. And that's the key to understanding that you know you have a deficiency of, of magnesium and you've treated it. Uh, again, always check the pH first. And then if you suspect it's magnesium, flush your plants and then uh, supplement with extra magnesium. All right. So excellent tip on uh, diagnosing deficiencies there. Uh, now, as Dan would say, without further ado, we're going to jump into our question and answer portion of the show. Uh, if you have a question that you would like answered on Grow Bud Yourself, Get in touch with us. You could email us. Uh, that is info at growbudyourself.com. You could also check out our website. What do you say? We dive right in. Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. So first up, uh, we have Gunja Gonzalez, who writes, Dear Mike and Danny, uh, first of all, great show. You make by far my most beloved podcast concerning the plant, so thank you. Uh, also, I'm a high head Patreon funder. Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate, really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, I have a question which I couldn't get an answer to anywhere. It's concerning terpenes. Uh, I choose my seeds through their terpene profile. Is there a difference between autoflower strains and photoperiod strains concerning their terpenes? For example, is the terpene profile of Gorilla Glue as a photoperiod strain different from Gorilla Glue as an autoflower? Does the ruderalis dilute the terpene profile? 
Uh, thanks very much in advance. I'm looking forward to getting mentioned on my favorite podcast. So uh, what would you say to Gunja Gonzalez? Yes. Uh, first, like I said, thank you very much for your kind words. The difference between the terpenes in autoflowers and photoperiod strains of the same strain is really relative to the breeder that made the autos. So taking something like Gorilla Glue and turning it into an autoflower, as you mentioned, requires adding Ruderalis genetics. That shouldn't really affect the terpenes. It, it, it sometimes it, in the old days it affected potency uh, because Ruderalis is less potent. But if the breeder knows what they're doing and can select for the phenotypes that produce the terpene profile that you're looking for, they should be able to match that in their autoflower version of a photoperiod strain. For instance, uh, Dynafem in Spain, they have uh, autoflower versions of Blue Dream and all the other strains that are out there, and they have tested them, and they have determined that uh, the autos match the photoperiod plants or regular seeds as as we would say uh as far as the terpene profiles go they've done this with lab testing so if you have a a great breeder you should be able to find an auto that has the terpene profile of the photoperiod strain you're looking for but again you're at the mercy of whoever you're getting those seeds from so get them from a reputable source all right, great advice. Uh, thank you, Gunja Gonzalez. I guess we really should be saying uh, GG4, because we don't want the jackbooted thugs from the U.S. Copyright Office kicking down our door and dragging yeah. us out for saying Gorilla Glue. But uh, <laughs> Big Glue will come after us. Big Glue. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks, Gunja Gonzalez. We hope that helps you out. Let's move on to Donkey Farmer, who writes, uh, Hi, Danny and Mike. A friend of mine is a firefighter in Portland, Oregon. Uh, he regularly gets called to homes that have caught fire while the occupants have been processing BHO. I read an article on firefighter.com that explains how dangerous fire can be when there are butane cylinders present. These anecdotal stories have a growing group of my neighbors in my area up in arms, thinking that state-licensed BHO operations in our area are a massive fire hazard. Uh, what, what is your opinion on the danger present in BHO processing? Thanks. Keep up the great work. So uh, what would you say there to Donkey Farmer? Yes. Uh, we're Basically, what I would say is we're talking about two very different methodologies uh, and procedures. Uh, when someone typically has caused a fire or an explosion in their home processing BHO, that's due to open blasting. That's typically someone who's taking uh, canisters and blasting that uh, very, very volatile and explosive gas through their cannabis um, to create BHO, which is butane honey oil. Uh, as they're doing that, they're releasing that gas outwardly in their home. So this is very, very dangerous and highly not recommended to do this inside any place where there isn't really amazing circulation. I mean, you really should be doing it outside, but you shouldn't be doing it, to be honest. And the state-licensed BHO operation that you're talking about uh, is is far less of a hazard because they are not using open blasting. They have closed loop systems where the gas goes from one chamber to another chamber. And as it's going through uh, between those two chambers, that's where it's passing through the cannabis to create uh, that BHO honey oil. So 
it's much less dangerous when you have a closed loop system and it actually saves uh, butane as well or hexane or whatever gas they may be using, uh, the hydrocarbons. So what happens is it's going back and forth and being reused over and over and it's sealed inside, uh, you know, incredibly strong stainless steel canisters and valves and everything is, is, is approved for that particular function. Whereas, you know, the, the, the wook who's just sp spraying gas through, uh, you know, a tube, uh, to create BHO in their home is doing something very, very dangerous. And because that butane is heavier than air and it pools, so it'll gather together on the floor and the slightest spark can cause that to explode and very, very bad. I mean, we're talking about blowing out the walls, blowing out the windows, uh, third degree burns, possible death, very, very dangerous activity. Whereas the, the other thing that you're talking about where a state licensed operation, they, there are so many rules and regulations as to how those things have to operate. And if there is a flaw in one of the valves or a gasket breaks and the gas uh, is released, there's safety measures that are there to keep that gas from exploding. There's all kinds. I mean, even the fans can't have sparks in them. Everything is, is up to, to code to prevent explosions. So I think, you know, the people, they're rightly uh, concerned about homes that are being used to create BHO. And I think it's much less of a problem, obviously, to have a state licensed BHO operation. And this is a problem with everything. I mean, where regulation does, in a way, create uh, better working environments and standard operating procedures. We don't drink bathtub gin anymore. I mean, obviously, there's people still making you know, moonshine and things like that. But the, the days of people b blowing up stills and or creating a product that makes people go blind is are done because alcohol is regulated and the people creating it have to do it by certain standards. And that's what we need with cannabis as well. So uh, that's, you know, I never recommend for people to do open blasting. I, uh, I think, you know, leave it to the chemists and the experts and people who are in a regulated space that's built to do that exact thing yeah and if they uh you know legalized meth there'd be less uh explosions there as well so regulation you know is important i'm not advocating <laughs> for legal meth I'm Mike, just you got you, you got something to tell me <laughs> i mean you know when you think about it legalize i agree meth. no of course i agree yeah. legalize everything and uh and regulate it and tax it and you know and then consume it not the meth. Come on. Come on, guys. The BHO. Let's get serious. A great Thanks, alternative, Don. by the way, yeah. Donkey. Is it rosin? <laughs> rosin. Blow up yeah. Rosin. Yeah. Rosin. Ice water hash. I mean, there's so many other ways to extract the essential oil of cannabis as amateurs that we really don't need to start experimenting with uh, ex explosive or volatile gases. Very true. Uh, okay, so thank you, Donkey Farmer. Let's try to get through a couple more of these. Um, this next one is from Daza, who writes, Hey team, I'm loving your podcast. I appreciate you both sharing your experiences and knowledge with the mere mortals among us. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> um, my question is, if I have an unknown strain that's currently at the start of week seven of Flower, and I'm unsure how long she'll keep bulging in all the right lady places... 
uh, what should I do about flushing? I understand somewhat about the states of trichome coloring cloudiness, but I want to make sure uh, my final product is of high quality regardless of the effect of the sensimilia smoky sexiness. Thank you for your time. Let's hope Australia and New Zealand, I live and grow in Brisbane, Australia, but came from New Zealand, start to wake up to the benefits of legalization soon. Keep doing what you're doing. Okay, very colorful, but uh, what would you say to Daza? Yes, Daza, a Kiwi living in Aussie. Hmm. Uh, I, I think I got that right. <laughs> yeah. What I would say is, uh, you know, this is one of those situations where if it's an unknown strain, you, you have to learn you know, what that strain is going to do. And if you're in week seven, the average strain flowers for about eight or nine weeks. If you're in week seven and it's looking like things are starting to get cloudy in the trichomes, then I would start flushing. If not, uh, you may have a 10 or an 11 week strain, but you'll know as soon as those trichomes begin to go amber and it's time to harvest. And by then it'll be too late. So it wouldn't hurt to start flushing in week seven as far as, you know, I don't know exactly which strain you're growing. If it's a long flowering sativa that goes for 15 weeks, then you'd be too early, obviously. But I'm assuming that it's something that's in the eight to 10 week range. Week seven is not a bad time to start flush. And that way you'll know next time you grow the same strain exactly when to start flushing. And that's how you dial in a strain that you grow it over and over and you figure it out. All right. Makes sense to me. We hope that helps you out. Uh, let's hop over to Patreon, do a couple there, um, and a quick shout out to our uh, number one super fan, uh, our boy Chad Westport. He's always commenting there on on the Patreon. We appreciate that. We love hearing what you guys think of the show. So uh, so yeah, keep that up, please. Uh, this first one here is from Jay Nasty, who writes, "Hey guys, I'm enjoying the show very much." I've almost caught up on all the episodes. I have a question about growing methods. What are a few of the memorable outside-the-box grow techniques that you've seen over the years? Uh, which ones have progressed the growing methods, and what are a couple that have been not so successful or absolutely absurd? Uh, what I can tell, once you go far from modern methods, you start seeing diminishing returns. You guys are rock stars, he says. He also uh, he got the signed book you sent, and it is a great read. So uh, what would you say to Jay Nasty? Hmm. Uh, well, first, thanks for the kind words. Uh, rock stars. Awesome. Rock on, Mike. Uh, outside the box grow techniques. A lot of these have to do with hydroponics uh, as far as uh, aeroponic systems that are just misting the roots in the air. That's pretty out outside the box and something you really need to dial in. But when, I, when you do dial in, it creates explosive growth rates. Uh, and that's really changed a lot of the grow game. And that's why you see uh, deep water culture becoming so popular. It's just, uh, it's kind of the best of both worlds because you've got the reservoir right there uh, for the roots to dangle into. And then you have the mist on the roots for them to just absorb the nutrient solution in a very highly oxygenated environment. So that's pretty outside the box. And I like that. I think, you know, something like... Uh, aquaponics where people are using fish tanks and using the fish poop and the refuse of the fish tank to feed plants. I think that's very innovative, tough to dial in, uh, tough to be successful with, but interesting and definitely outside the box. We've also seen some incredible things. Our colleague Nico used to have a grow where he actually raised and lowered the floor 
instead of raising and lowering the lights, which I thought was, was interesting and uh, maybe uh, a little much, you know, as you say, a little absurd, but also interesting and experimental and trying to find, you know, new, new methods. For me, you know, you mentioned straying too far from modern methods is diminishing return. I find that as we go back to the past methods, things like no-till farming, organics, veganics, using a living soil, beneficial bacteria and microbes, compost teas. I find that those methods are really resulting in a higher quality cannabis product and an easier to consume uh, plant. Tastes better, burns better, and uh, just is much more of what you're looking for when you're a connoisseur or a patient. So I think uh, there's a lot of outside the, the box techniques that are happening out there. There's also, you know, you mentioned absurd. There's a lot of silly things where people are peeing on plants or they don't want to give the plant light for the last week, or they have all these alternative uh, lighting programs where it's 12 hours one day and it's six hours another and it's eight and four. And those things I find typically are a little bit far-fetched and overblown and in those cases, I would say just keep it simple. Stick to, you know, 20 on, 4 off for veg or 18 on, 6 off for veg and 12 on, 12 off for flower. And feed the plants what they want, create the environment that they like, and they will be happy. All right, there you go, Jay Nasty. Well, let's just do one more here from Patreon. Uh, it is Donna. And uh, Donna starts by commenting on the guy who said, Danny says you know too much. What an asshole. I think you should spend about five minutes saying it over and over once an episode. No one puts Danny in a corner. <laughs> uh, I think the guy was right. I, I appreciate you, Donna, but the guy's right. I do say, you know, I have some filler words that I use, and I, I'm trying to do less and less of that, and I'm aware of it. I'm trying it's an to... hour-long show. We have to fill it up a little bit sometimes, so, you know. Yeah, you know. but it's annoying. It, I, I, when I listen back, I'm annoyed by it myself. So sometimes it's just filler ways to kind of fill the space. And Well, anyway, we do appreciate that, Donna, but uh, there is a question here. So she continues, um, I have a tent set up in a spare bedroom, 4x4, 600-watt metal halide, a diminutive intake fan, a standard Amazonian charcoal filter and fan. I'm running two humidifiers inside the tent. I just added an evaporative model for the room. The windows are open in the room to keep it cold enough. The door is closed. Why, oh why, can't I get anywhere close to 50% humidity? Furthermore, with the reported outdoor humidity of 49%, in my grow room with two humidifiers blasting away in the 4x4 and a giant 2-gallon evaporative humidifier outside the tent, the tent humidity is 32%. I have never heard a discussion of low humidity problems on your podcast. Am I the only one? The thermometer humidity monitor is one of the usual digital doohickeys. Oh wait, could it be a bad thermometer? So what would you say to Donna here about her low humidity problem? Okay, uh, well 30% is low, but not ridiculously low. You want it closer to 50 as you mentioned for most of the growth periods. But 30 is not awful. I'm wondering why the windows are open in the room. You say to keep it cold enough, but I think if you shut the windows, you'd probably end up keeping some of that humidity inside the, the room where the tent is in and therefore inside the tent as well. 
uh, running two humidifiers and an evaporative model. It seems to be a lot, and it doesn't sound like you're in a very dry area, so that does seem odd. But first off, I would say check the thermometer hygrometer and make sure that it's accurate so that the temperatures and the humidity levels are accurate because if your plants aren't showing signs of low humidity, you may be at that 50% and just not have your meters calibrated properly. If that's not the case and they are calibrated properly, then uh, I don't really know how you can add more without just getting another humidifier in that room, but that may be overkill. You may want to just upgrade to a much better humidifier, one that just creates a lot more moisture. Certain things are pulling the, you know, drying the air out. The grow light is drying the air out. The uh, the lack of humidity outside of the room is pulling that moisture out. And, you know, certain HVAC systems can also make it dry as well. So do what you can to raise the humidity. And thank you for defending me <laughs> on the filler words that I will try my hardest to reduce. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Donna. And thank you to everybody who wrote in this week. Uh, if you have a question that you would like answered on the show, get in touch with us. Uh, go to our website, growbudyourself.com. We're going to take a little break, uh, but then when we come back, we're going to wrap it up. Sounds good. All right. Welcome back. And I think we have reached the wrap. It's rap time. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Oldie but a goodie. <laughs> correct. Um, anyway, this is episode 34. I just want to thank, uh, as always, DJ Jacques and Winstrong for the song. Uh, Dr. Mitch Earlywine, a guest of on many shows, but finally featured as an interview on the show. Also, all our sponsors, Excelsior Extracts, Sweet Leaf Nutrients, Diamond Cut Co. Trimming Scissors. Check them all out uh, for different deals that they have. That's Danko20. The code Danko20 for um, Diamond Cut. Danko15 for Sweet Leaf Nutrients. And And with Excelsior, you just contact them about the pain rub on their DMs on Instagram. So, yeah. Oh, and code GBY for Vapor.com for 15% off your entire order. That's right. And uh, that Vapor.com, man, you could buy almost anything you need. So if you're in the market right now for, you know, the new uh, packs or the new whatever it might be that's out there, um, you know, this is a way to just get 15% off and save some money and support the show. So episode number 34 is in the books. We'll be back next week with more definitely check out our patreon page our youtube please subscribe and yeah thanks thanks to everyone newsletter newsletter too yeah we're up to you know a good amount of people on the newsletter uh which is exciting and there's interesting stuff in there that you don't get necessarily from the show or anywhere else so thanks you guys thanks for the support and keep it up we appreciate it let's put this one in the books